Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. Hey, our podcast today is brought to you in part by New Leaf Naturals CBD Oil. Louise and I have been using this for a while, and it is spectacular. It doesn't get you high. It's ideal for people who want to use cannabinoids without pot. Uh, it's made from hemp, but it is a potent pain reliever and anti-inflammatory uh, compound. And the brand that I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals, NU Leaf Naturals. 100% organic, highly concentrated, only made from hemp. Uh, go to newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com, and you can save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. That's newleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World by Anand Giridharadas. This is from the prologue. All around us in America is the clank, clank, clank of the new in our companies and economy, our neighborhoods and schools, our technologies and social fabric. But these novelties have failed to translate into broadly shared progress and the betterment of our overall civilization. The average American's health remains worse and slower improving than that appears in other rich countries, and in certain years, life expectancy actually declines. American inventors create astonishing new ways to learn, thanks to the power of video and the Internet, many of them free of charge, but the average 12th grader tests more poorly in reading today than in 1992. The system that people expect to turn fortuitous developments into societal progress. Instead, that system in America and around the world has been organized to siphon the gains from innovation upward, such that the fortunes of the world's billionaires now grow at more than double the pace of everyone else's. And the top 10% of humanity have come to hold 90% of the planet's wealth. It's no wonder that the American voting public, like other publics around the world, has turned more resentful and suspicious in recent years, embracing populist movements on the left and the right, bringing socialism and nationalism into the center of political life in a way that once seemed unthinkable, and succumbing to all manner of conspiracy theories and fake news. There is a spreading recognition on both sides of the ideological divide that the system is broken and has to change. Some elites faced with this kind of gathering anger have hidden behind walls and gates on landed estates, emerging only to try to seize even greater political power to protect themselves against the mob. But in recent years, a great many fortunate people have also tried something else, something both laughable and self-serving. They've tried to help by taking ownership of the problem. 
All around us, the winners in our highly inequitable status quo declare themselves partisans of change. They know the problem and they want to be part of the solution. Actually, they want to lead the search for solutions. They believe that their solutions deserve to be at the forefront of social change. They may join or support movements initiated by ordinary people looking to fix aspects of our society, but more often these elites start initiatives of their own, taking on social change as though it were just another stock in their portfolio or another corporation to restructure. The book Winners Take All by Anand Giridharis. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Boy, we've got a lot of news today that we're going to get to. More news about Medicare Advantage costing us billions, us being we the taxpayers of America, while health insurance companies, for-profit insurance corporations are basically draining the coffers of Medicare. It's pretty shocking. The manufacturing sector just contracted for the first time in nearly a decade. The Trump recession is on its way. We'll get back to that in a few minutes, but Professor Richard Wolf is on the line with us. He is the economist and co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author most recently of Understanding Marxism. R.D. Wolf with two Fs.com is the website, and Prof. Wolf with two Fs is his Twitter handle as well as democracyatwork.info. Dr. Wolf, welcome back to the program. Glad to be here, Tom. Thank you. So we're hearing all this stuff about an inverted yield curve, about recession coming. Can you translate all this into simple English for us? You're so good at that. Good. That's what I'll work at. Basically, the name of our system is capitalism. It should come as a surprise to nobody. And capitalism has been kind of the dominant world system now for a couple of hundred years starting in England and spreading worldwide. Here's one basic fact about it. Wherever capitalism has become the basic system, we have what's called an economic downturn or a crisis or a cycle or a recession or a depression. The words are many. Every four to seven years, that's the average. Now, as an average, it means sometimes it can take longer. Right now, we're in about a nine-year since the last major downturn, which was back in 2009 and 10. So the basic thing people have to understand is we are already overdue for one of these downturns, and it is probably going to be bad because we've had an upturn lasting a bit longer than the average. That's the first thing. The second thing is, in the middle of that, either unaware or not caring, the Trump Republican administration has unleashed a global trade war with the two most important economies in the world today, U.S. and China, fighting it out, hurting each other by tit-for-tat tariffs and all the rest of it. This is very bad for those two economies. J.P. Morgan recently estimated that every American family is losing literally hundreds to thousands of dollars 
per year from this, which gives you an idea of how big it is. The Chinese are losing. The German economy just went into recession, and it's the most important economy in the world, depending heavily on the U.S. and on China, etc., etc. So we have a regular economic downturn in our unstable system, worsened by the uh, self-serving notion of Mr. Trump uh, positioning himself as the great champion of the United States, initiating this trade war, pursuing and aggravating the trade war. So it's very, very bad what's coming down the pike. And you can't fake it anymore. The repeating, uh, the repetition by the administration that our economy is great, great, great just won't cut it anymore. It isn't great. It has become more unequal even than it was back in 2007. The signs are everywhere, and all reasonable economists know it's coming. The Really, the only debate is how bad it will be, when exactly it will hit, and how long it will last. And, and what we'll do to get out of it, I suppose. And uh, what we will be doing desperately to get out of it. That's what you hear the headlines of the last few days. Herky-jerky as usual. One day he is going to cut this tax, the next day he denies it. Not, you know, it's all, it's the chaos of not understanding what you're doing, not grasping the context in which you're doing it. It's economic policy that is no more reasonable or rational than most of the other things that we see coming out of the uh, Washington and the White House. I'm curious how capitalism has been used and whether or not it's even intrinsic to capitalism or it's simply just another tool that could be used by racists to perpetuate racial hierarchy, by misogynists to perpetuate the domination of women, by homophobes to perpetuate the oppression of people who are, you know, not straight or gender conforming or whatever the, you know, however you describe that. What role does capitalism play in all this? Well, I think it's a very, very important role. I think these things are intimately connected, and let me explain how that works. Given that capitalism is so unstable, that it has a major downturn every four to seven years, during which typically millions of people are thrown out of work, huge numbers of small and medium-sized businesses, and even a few big ones go out of business. They flare out and explode or disintegrate. Given that, you would have a very hard time holding on to capitalism if it really affected everyone. If, in other words, if we were all, like random numbers, worried every four to seven years, any plans we'd made, any uh, home we had made a down payment on, any education plans for our children could be blown away because we would be caught up each of us randomly in whenever the downturn was. If you live a normal life to 70 or 80 years, you're going to go through lots of those, and it would be extraordinarily disruptive. What has happened in most capitalist societies who have understood this is that the capitalist system, even without anyone planning it, it's not a conspiracy, assign the uncertainty, the instability to particular subgroups. Here in the United States, it is African-Americans, it is non-whites, it is women. Why? Because every time there's a downturn, those people are the ones first fired. Every time there's an up, upswing, they're the ones last hired. They're the ones who absorb disproportionately the instability, the ups and downs. Then, in a peculiar twist, the rest of the society is encouraged, here comes the white supremacy, to believe 
that the African-American or the woman who goes in and out of the labor force, that this is somehow a peculiarity of them, that it is something intrinsic to an African-American or a female, etc., that he, she is in and out of the labor force, not understanding that somebody in capitalism has to be kicked out of the labor force every four to seven years. And if you did it to everybody, then everybody would have a shared interest in changing the system so they don't have this kind of absurd instability. Instead, we give the permanent job, the job least likely to be bounced out when we have these downturns, to the white men. And they get that kind of privilege. They've always had that. And you focus the instability, the uncertainty, the up and down of the, of the labor market onto the secondary people, the repressed people, the discriminated against people. And then you make the whole system work by blaming the instability, not on the system that's causing it, but on the individuals. It's a wonderful example of blaming the victim. So this is why uh, when President Obama became president, inheriting, you know, a downturn, this Bush crash, that Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity and all these guys over on Fox News were constantly ranting about, look at how many people are on food stamps now. Oh, my God. And, you know, and uh, I'm guessing probably more often than not, they'd show pictures of black people. Absolutely. And, And you can get, I mean, the full horror of all of this is that, The white supremacy we see now was stoked. It's always been here, as you pointed out earlier. But it was really stoked because the white people in America, having been given this peculiar privilege, have, of course, in the back of their mind, a guilt. You don't have to be a psychologist to see it. They kind of know, even without admitting it, that they're in this privileged position. And so they have the behavior that's typical of guilty people. They imagine that if ever those African-Americans or those women who have been bounced in and out of the labor force with all the disruption and uncertainty that that means in your personal life, your career, and everything else, they have the fear that if a black man were to become president, and I think the same applies if it were a woman, white or black, that they will be the victims of the people they have been victimizing. In other words, that it will be role reversal. They're terrified of that. They know very well, in some sense, what they've been getting all along. And since there's no one to help them understand that this is a systemic problem and not a problem about this or that group in the population, they can't think about a system that wouldn't require this kind of suffering of anybody, white or black, male or female. They can only think of who's in the better position, and I'd rather be on top than on the bottom because of how this society works. So the worst thing I can imagine is a black person as president or a female as president. We're going to see all that played out in the months ahead in a very ugly way. Yeah, especially if a woman gets the Democratic nomination, which I think is... Very likely. This coincidence or coming together, this convergence of an unstable economic system that has kept itself going by setting people against each other, this is coming to a head in our society, and we're in for quite a stormy time. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two fs.com. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. Look forward to it next time. Me too. Always great talking with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman.
I've got an important message for all my listeners. Economists will tell you that rising gold prices are an indicator of a failing currency. Well, gold is already up over 10% just since January and up over 33% in the last three years. What is all this really telling us? Well, the last crash was just a warning. It's only been papered over with trillions of dollars in new debt, and statistically, the next crash is already overdue. This reality has pushed the demand for precious metals to price levels not seen in nearly six years. The time to buy gold is now, before the crash and before the next price increase. The big questions everyone asks are, who can I trust and what types of gold do I buy? Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold the proper gold and silver strategy will help secure all your major assets, including your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Donald Trump is dialing back on the Volcker Rule. The Volcker Rule was part of this legislation that was passed, the, you know, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act, to prevent banks that are operating with insurance paid for by you and me, FDIC insurance. Right now, if you put your money into your local bank's checking or savings account, the first, I think it's quarter million of it, is insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Company or corporation. Um, and the theory is, you know, if the bank screws up or if the economy goes to hell or whatever, that you will be reimbursed for your money. Well, that FDIC insurance is even a little broader than that. And if the bank screws up, they get covered by money that you and I put up as taxpayers. And so the Volcker rule basically said that, you know, banks can gamble all day long with their own money. In other words, if a bank shows a, you know, a million dollars in profit this month, they can put that million dollars into an account and they can put it on Wall Street and they can gamble with it. No problem. That's their money. But they can't use my checking account to gamble with because if they do and they lose, I'm the one who gets screwed. Or actually, you know, all of us are because FDIC pays it out. So Trump says, hey, you know, we don't need this anymore. And so he's, you know, by executive order, it, it, he is trying to, trying to dial back the Volcker, the so-called Volcker rule. Uh, the, this, uh, this piece over Daily Coast by Joan McCarter, she says, uh, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the OCC and the FDIC, have decided to give Wall Street one of its biggest wins under the Trump administration. All the Republican FCIC members voted in favor of this. The one Democratic commissioner, Trump has not appointed any Democrats to this thing. He's supposed to, but he hasn't. Martin Grunberg voted against the rule change, saying it would effectively undo the protections of the rule. Sherrod Brown is upset about this. He's the ranking member on the banking committee. He said, Trump regulators continue to open a Pandora's box of risky trading and speculation at the expense of American taxpayers. You know, three quarters of Americans now expect a recession next year. Uh, this is great. I, I mean, this is terrible. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic. Trump's brilliant new idea. He was saying, well, you know, I'm not thinking, uh, we need to stimulate the economy, but I'm not thinking about a tax cut. Then the day after that, he was saying, well, you know, maybe we should have a tax cut. In fact, maybe it should be a payroll tax cut, which is, by the way, the most effective stimulus. 
because it kneecaps Social Security and transfers that money into the pockets of, of working people, including working poor people, which means they spend all of it. But it also hurts Social Security, which is why when Obama was getting us out of Bush's Great Depression here, uh, you know, back in 2008 or 2009, actually, he had just uh, for one year had a, I think it was a two-point reduction in the Social Security tax. So then Trump says he's in favor of that. Now Trump says he's not thinking about that. And who knows what it means? So Trump is all over the place. And this is the guy who is our president. Meanwhile, Greenland and England are both offered to buy the United States from Russia. (laughs) Or at least, you know, wags in those countries. Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great by Professor Harvey J. Kay, who's a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. This is from the introduction, page one. We need to remember. We need to remember what conservatives have never wanted us to remember and what liberals have all too often forgotten. Now, after more than 30 years of subordinating the public good to corporate priorities and private greed, of subjecting ourselves to widening inequality and intensifying insecurities, and of denying our democratic impulses and yearnings, we need to remember. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who rescued the United States from the economic destruction of the Great Depression and defended it against fascism and imperialism in the Second World War. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who not only saved the nation from economic ruin and political oblivion, but also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous country on earth. And most of all, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who accomplished all that in the face of powerful, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition, and despite all their own faults and failings by making America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. Now, when all they fought for is under siege, and we, too, find ourselves confronting crises and forces that threaten the nation and all that it stands for, now we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the most progressive generation in American history. We are the children of the men and women who articulated, fought for, and endowed us with the promise of the four freedoms. On the afternoon of January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went up to Capitol Hill to deliver his annual message to Congress. Just weeks earlier, he had defeated the Republican Wendell Wilkie at the polls and won re-election to an unprecedented third term. But Roosevelt now faced a far greater challenge, one even more daunting than those he confronted in his first and second terms. Still stalked by the Great Depression, the United States was also increasingly threatened by the Axis power, Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, Imperial Japan. And with war already raging East and West, Americans had yet to agree about how to respond to the danger. The president, however, did not falter. He not only proceeded to propose measures to address the emergency, he gave dramatic new meaning to all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, the people of the United States, a new birth of freedom, and government of the people, by the people, and for the people. FDR knew about crises, but he knew as well what Americans could accomplish even in the darkest of times. Born in 1882, he had grown up privileged, the son of New York Hudson River Gentry. Yet long before becoming president, he had suffered serious defeats and setbacks, 
none more devastating than contracting polio in 1921 at the age of 39. The disease left him permanently unable to stand up or walk without assistance. However, supported by his wife Eleanor and other family members and friends, he had risen above the paralysis to become the most dynamic political figure in the United States. Moreover, his experiences and encounters in the course of doing so had reaffirmed and deepened his already powerful faith and confidence in God, in himself, and in his fellow citizens, all of which had enabled him, in the face of the worst economic and social catastrophe in the nation's history, to defiantly state that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and then go on to proclaim this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Armed with this faith and confidence and propelled by the popular energies that his words and elections elicited, he determinedly pursued the initiatives of relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform known as the New Deal. Together, president and people severely tested each other, made mistakes and regrettable compromises, and suffered defeats and disappointments. Nevertheless, challenging each other to live up to their finest ideals, Roosevelt and his fellow citizens advanced them further than either had expected, confronting fierce conservative reactionary and corporate opposition. They not only rejected authoritarianism, but also redeemed the nation's historic purpose by initiating revolutionary changes in American government and public life and radically extending American freedom, equality, and democracy. They subjected big business to public account and regulation empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people, mobilized and organized labor unions, fought for their rights, broadened and leveled the we and we the people, established a social security system, expanded the nation's public infrastructure, improved the environment, cultivated the arts, and refashioned popular culture. And while much remained to be done, imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions, hopes, and aspirations. Standing before the American people and their assembled representatives that early January day, the president surely believed their rendezvous with destiny had come. He told them straightforwardly that Americans were now confronting a moment unprecedented in the history of the United States. A moment unprecedented because never before had American security been as seriously threatened from without. And he refused to appease those who threatened our nation's safety. The book is The Fight for the Four Freedoms by Harvey King. Speaking from experience here, I've run a lot of businesses over the years. I've started a lot of businesses, and I can tell you that one of the biggest challenges that a growing business has is keeping track of all your numbers, is knowing what's going on where, and, and the problem is this hodgepodge of business systems that so many of us end up with as our, as our companies grow. So here's how to get rid of this big inefficient mess that takes up too much time and too many resources. Go to NetSuite by Oracle. It's the business management software that handles every aspect of your business, an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, HR, all right from your desk or your phone. And that's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. You can get a copy over at netsuite.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, suite is S-U-I-T-E. That's netsuite.com slash Tom to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, netsuite.com slash Tom.
Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And uh, boy, what, a, what an amazing time, right? What, what an amazing time we live in. And I wanted to talk about Medicare Advantage. We, we talked about this briefly. In fact, we talked with uh, Alex Lawson about it a week or so ago. And it's becoming a crisis. Now, just for history, Medicare started in the 1960s. I think it was 67. But anyhow, it was back in the day. It was part of the Great Society, Lyndon Johnson's program, you know, continuing the legacy of John Kennedy. Medicare and Medicaid got rolled out. And Medicare was a single-payer health care system available to people 65 and older, period, full stop. And Robert Ball, one of the guys who designed the program, was very clear and explicit and wrote in his own notes and in his uh, diaries and whatnot that their understanding was, and in fact their commission from Lyndon Johnson was, design a program that will work for people over 65 because the insurance companies don't want to insure these people. And they were dropping people from their insurance plans as soon as they got sick. And it was creating a real crisis. They're not as profitable. Design a plan for people over 65. The insurance companies will go along with this. We can get it passed through Congress. But make sure that that plan can be scaled. In other words, we can, and in fact, Robert Ball figured that, you know, by within 10, 15 years, everybody in America would be covered by Medicare. You just start lowering the eligibility age, you know, 10 years, you know, by a decade every year. So, you know, if you roll it out in 67 and it's for people 65, 68, it's for people 55, 69 is for people, uh, you know, uh, 45 and, and on until it's covering absolutely everybody. That was the that was Robert Ball and Lyndon Johnson's idea. So then comes George W. Bush and George W. Bush back in the 1970s when he ran for Congress from Texas, he ran for a seat in the House of Representatives. He lost. But he did run for elected office before he ran for governor, and his singular issue was privatizing Social Security. And the subtext of that, since Medicare is run by the Social Security Administration, was privatizing Medicare. And like I said, George W. Bush lost when he ran on that. So then he becomes president, and as president, you'll recall, if you, if you remember the 2004 election and what happened in the 12 months after that, after George W. Bush got reelected in 2004, he was sworn in on January 20th, 2005. And one of the first things he said in January of 2005 was that he was going to privatize Social Security. And I think you can presume Medicare as well, because they're kind of, you know, they got kind of bundled together by LBJ. You want to sign up for Medicare, you have to go to a Social Security office, for example, something that probably people who are under 65 don't know. But, you know, it's basically kind of one program. And as George W. Bush, as president, he famously said, you know, I've got a lot of political capital coming out of this election, and I'm going to use that political capital. Well, what he was going to use it for specifically was privatizing Social Security and Medicare. Well, he couldn't get them privatized. In fact, the more he did a tour, he went on tour around the United States to do this sales pitch for privatizing Social Security and Medicare. And the more cities he visited, the more unpopular the idea became. Or the less popular the idea became. The more he talked about privatizing Social Security, want to be great, you'll have control over your, your retirement money. And people were going, eh, I kind of like Social Security. And finally he gave up. Sort of. But in giving up, he did get something changed. He got Social Security partially privatized. This was passed during the George W. Bush administration. 
Thomas Scully was the administrator of uh, Medicare and Social Security at the time, and he helped put this whole thing together. And uh, it was called Medicare Advantage. And what it is, is you sign up for Medicare Advantage and you're actually not getting your health insurance from the federal government. You're getting it from a private for-profit health insurance company. And in order to make it positive, now keep in mind, this was something that the Republicans came up with during the George W. Bush administration as a way to partially privatize Social Security and Medicare. And the way it works is you buy the insurance policy from the private insurance company. And there's a bunch of them that offer these Medicare Advantage plans. And then the federal government will reimburse the insurance company for all the claims. So if you've got a uh, United Healthcare Medicare Advantage program and you run up $100,000 worth of bills this year in medical bills, the federal government will write a check to that company for $100,000 to United Healthcare. That's how it works. And then the premiums that you pay cover the million dollar, multi-million dollar salaries of, well, in the case of United Healthcare, they've got over 100 employees who make more than a million dollars a year, and their CEO, their last CEO, took over a billion dollars, as did the one before him. Well, now we're discovering, this is uh, by Fred Schulte, and it's from a three-part series that the Center for Public Integrity has published. Publicintegrity.org is the website. And I'll just give you a few of the high points here. In the Las Vegas area, Private health care plans for seniors ran up more than $100 million in added Medicare charges after asserting patients they signed up were much sicker than normal. In Rochester, New York, a Medicare plan was paid $41 million to treat people with serious diseases, even though the plan couldn't prove the patients, in fact, had those diseases. The plans have sharply driven up costs in many parts of the United States, larding on tens of billions of dollars in overcharges and other suspect billings based in part on inflated assessments of how sick patients are, according to this investigation by the Center for Public Integrity. Risk score errors triggered nearly $70 billion in improper payments to Medicare Advantage plans from 2008 through 2013. You get that? These companies stole $70 billion of your and my money out of the Medicare trust fund. Mostly through overbillings. Now, the Center for Public Integrity is suing to make these records public, but they're not, you can't get the money back. In more than 200 of these counties, the risk scores of Medicare, Medicare Advantage patients rose sharply in, pl in plans in at least a thousand counties nationwide. In other words, this scam is being run by the insurance companies in, a, in, about, you know, in about a thousand counties. Now, I don't think that there's even 2,000 counties in the United States. I think the number of the counties is somewhere between 14 and 1,600. So that's more than half of America. In more than 200 of these counties, the cost of Medicare Advantage plans was at least 25% higher than the cost of standard Medicare. So Medicare is trying to do something about this. So, for example, Excellus Health Plan in Rochester, New York, they overbilled Medicare by $41 million for 2007. Medicare fought with them over and over and over, want that $41 million bucks back. And finally, 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 in December of 2013, Excellus Health Plan paid $157,000 for the $41 million in overbilling. It's a scam. Just like George W. Bush's privatization of Social Security would have been a scam. 
By 2009, government officials were estimating that just over 15% of all Medicare Advantage payments were inaccurate, about $12 billion in 2009. And by the way, if it's inaccurate, you would expect it would be 50-50, right? Half the time it works to the advantage of the insurance company, half the time it works to the advantage of the government. Surprise, surprise, 80% of the time, it's the insurance company overbilling. $9.3 billion for the year 2009. In fact, the Medicare Advantage billing error rate has averaged 12% over the past six years. Amazing. Let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Mary in Tucson, Arizona. Hey, Mary, what's up? Hi, I know you don't like Medicare Advantage, but without it, my mother and I would be basically homeless because we wouldn't be able to pay our medical bills. Well, that's why you get Medicare and a Medigap plan from a private insurance company. Again, something that the Republicans brought us, but... Then again, we'd have to be able to afford to pay for that. Right. You know, uh, Mom and I are both just basically living on Social Security. So, you know, we're screwed no matter what we do. Yeah, well, this is the system that they've set up, and I get it. I don't, frankly, understand why you can't go on Medicare instead of Medicare Advantage. But but because of all these subsidies, some of these Medicare Advantage programs actually offer some more benefits, or at least it looks that way on paper. The problem is that the insurance that you have right now, Mary, is actually private... The insurance you have right now is actually a private for-profit health insurance plan, and they have the right, under many circumstances, to cancel you, to raise your rates, to refuse to pay for things. You'll get surprise billings. You'll get all kinds of stuff that won't happen with real Medicare because the company that you're buying this from is a for-profit company, and, and you will discover this if and when you get seriously sick. It used to be one that was a non-profit, and then they sold. Yeah. To Anthem. Yeah, there you go. So, which we're not we're not happy about. Yeah. Well, good luck. But, I you know I, I wish you the very best. I get I get your point, Mary. Thank you for the call, Chris in Miami. I am told by our call screener that you called her sweetie. What's what's I, going on, Chris? I, I actually wanted to apologize for that. I have this is we're in the South. And okay. That's the way we speak, and I certainly meant no offense. Yeah. Truly was, and actually, actually, it was on my list here to to apologize for that. It was certainly not illegal. What do you call it about? I just looked at a Bloomberg article. The wealthiest families in America are making $4 million an hour right now. And what strikes me is how yeah, that's talk the, about risk the Walton here. family, yeah. Well, yeah, it, but it's, it's $4 million an hour, sir. Yeah. And when we talk about risk takers, you know, they always talk about the risk takers. These people are investing and they're creating jobs. The risk takers are people like me. They go and we take a job with these people. And then we're not needed. We're booted out. And we're virtually on the, on the edge of being homeless at any moment. Those are the risk takers. The You're absolutely class. right. We are the risk takers, sir. You're absolutely right. You know, Sorry for I jumping on your throat for, for saying sweetie. Uh, usually when conservatives call and, and, you know, one of the people answering the phone is a woman, we have both women and men who answer the phones here. They try to get sexist with them, and I, I assumed that you were going to come on with some sort of conservative no, rant no. at me. Um, no, so, no, no, so, yeah, no, you're no. absolutely right. I mean, the real risk takers in this society are not multimillionaires who have private jets and fly, you know, and live in, you know, 16 exactly. different mansions all around the world and, and might lose, you know, five million bucks this afternoon at the market. 
market goes down, but hey, they got a billion in the bank. The real risk takers are the people who are out there, you know, working day by day, and they have no savings for retirement, and they're and if they lose their job or they get sick or their or their car breaks down, they're screwed. That's exactly. You're absolutely right. Which is which is where I am right now. I'm sorry to hear that, Chris. Well, if you, you know these things happen, but that's I mean I'm I'm looking. So my parents are in their early 80s. I desperately want to leave this country. I see where this is going. But my grandfather was a Nazi, but he was an apothecary. He was a pharmacist. He was in the Nazi Red Cross, but he was what was called the Hauptfeldwebel or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, absolutely until the day he died, he was a follower of Hitler. Yeah, well, in the last yeah. couple of years, you know, the last I guess the last five or six years, pretty much if you wanted to keep any kind of job, you had to join the party. So you've, you have in your family seen this cycle. You, you're concerned that we're going down this road again. We are going down this road. Yeah. We're absolutely going down this road. It started with the Patriot Act, which from what I understand was written well before 9-11. Yes, it was. And they were just waiting for the next Pearl Harbor to be. Well, they had tried it a couple times, actually. The versions of the Patriot Act had been, had been attempted to be introduced in the 90s, and it just went nowhere because everybody looked at it and said, this is crazy. And by the way, let me just feed your concerns here. The headline, I think, from Raw Story says it as well as anything else, leaked draft of Trump executive order to, quote, censor the Internet, end quote, denounced as dangerous and unconstitutional. And Evan Greer, who's a regular guest on our program from Fight for the Future, uh, the Internet group, says, in practice, this executive order would mean whichever political party is in power could dictate which speech is allowed on the Internet. Yeah, sounds kind of like China yeah. or Nazi Germany. Yeah, there you go. That's where, that's where we're going, sir. There you go. Okay. I want to move my family to Uruguay. Yeah, good luck, Chris. Good luck. Thanks a lot for the call. <laughs> sorry. sorry I went off after. Sir, thank you. You do a great job. I really appreciate what Thanks. you Thanks. Good you. talking to you. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hey, uh, Tom. Hey, well, yeah, I was thinking about the economy, and I wanted to make the, the point, the state-by-state point, that the main problem for most of the people in the Trump-supporting states is the, if I could say, the crummy way they run their asshole state. Yes. I mean, they, they, cut, they have the legislature, the, the Republican states have tax cut themselves back into the Stone Age, so they have no infrastructure. Their schools are lousy, and they this uh, with this false belief that they will they will encourage business to come there. And I'm going to make this point: businesses don't look for places with low taxes. Sorry, honey. <laughs> yeah, I no. Mean. Businesses look for places that have good roads, which you're not going to find in right. red states. That have good schools because they want to bring employees in who are who you know who are looking for good schools in the neighborhoods, which you won't find in red states. Who who, who have you know good uh, where you have good university options at reasonably low prices, which you won't find by right. and large in red states. That have good healthcare infrastructure, which you won't find in red states. In fact, red states are where the hemorrhaging, where hospitals shutting down left and right, or being acquired by giant hospital groups that then jack prices to the ceiling. That's happening mostly in red states. What companies are looking for is the stuff that you find in blue states, which is why the blue states are growing and prospering, and the red states are collapsing and dying. That's right. And the other thing about that, so they're looking for states with high taxes where the communities, the state, are investing in their communities. And the other thing, Tom, is by and large, the companies know that they're not going to be the ones paying those taxes. They're going to get some kind of a deal. Right. And I, had, I need to point no further than to after the big search was over, where did Amazon choose? I don't, I'm not saying where they end up, but where did they choose? They chose the highest tax places that you could possibly find you know, in New York, New York City. City. Yeah. 
And so they went from Seattle, where the where the conservatives gripe about, oh, Amazon's going to leave. And they are leaving. They're moving to Bellevue, where taxes are really high, too, by the way. Right. And so this myth that that's what's going to bring in business has never panned out. And these people still can't understand. They think Donald Trump is going to save them, and they, and they don't. That Businesses don't want to come there. There's yeah. nothing for them there. And the, the, you talk about the health care, where, where hospitals are closing... And they have to provide health care for their employees. They don't want to go to a place where health care is very high. They want to go to a place where it's supported. And so that their health plans that they have for the local for their employees are not going to be skyrocketing high. So this big right. myth. So they, they cut all their taxes, and they basically cut themselves out of the economy. And they have this psychology that, I don't know what it's called, is that uh, somehow if you keep doing the wrong things more and more, somehow it'll finally work, right? Right. <laughs> it's it just doesn't work, and they don't they don't seem to understand that, and they're angry. And if you look at a lot of these places where people have, in many in many cases, uh, in rural cases where they have uh, gone to jobs like, let's say in Michigan, I mean, my folks live in Michigan, people have moved up north to get away from it all, where they did kind of a casual labor, worked under the table, they never paid into Social Security, and now when they're in their 50s and 60s going, oh, you know, I really can't split wood for a living anymore, and I never paid into Social Security. Now right. I'm really angry. Right. That's right. the mentality. And it's got to be the fault of those brown people and black people and, and, and women and gay people. And, I mean, you know, fill in the blanks. It's got to be somebody else's fault. And One statistic, Tom, yeah. if I could tell you. Donald Trump in the election won 2,600 counties across the country. With 62 million votes, I calculated a an average of fewer than twenty four thousand people per county voted for Donald Trump, and those counties accounted for thirty six percent of the economic production in the country. Hillary Clinton won five hundred counties, less than twenty percent of the twenty six hundred. She won five hundred counties across the nation with an average number of one hundred and thirty two thousand voters, which is what five more than five times, six times what Donald Trump had per county. And the economic production in those 500 counties was 64% of the nation's economic production. So that tells the story right there. Right. And without the Electoral College, both Al Gore would have been president and Hillary Clinton would have been president, You know, which is why the Republicans are fighting so hard to keep the Electoral College. Paul, thank you. Great to hear from you. I appreciate it. Donna in Denver. Hey, Donna, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, this is Donna Smith. How are you? Oh, great. I'm well. How are you? Good, and I was so pleased to hear you talking about Medicare Advantage. I mean, what uh, the waste, fraud, and abuse that's happening in that program is breathtaking. And the reality for many, I will be 65 in November, and at last count, I've had 42 pieces of mail trying to recruit me into a Medicare Advantage plan. So if I am representative of what insurance companies hanker to have, they want people who they can label as being diseased so that they can get those extra payments. And it's really quite staggering. People need to be aware that the money that's being spent on that marketing, those pieces of mail that I'm getting, are coming away from being able to provide care to people. That's right. And it's a really bad system that we need to stop it before Medicare is privatized more. Yeah, amen. I'm, I'm totally with you. Donna, thank you for sharing that story with us. That's remarkable. Absolutely. Um, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Great hearing from you. You're listening to Tom Hartman.
it seems like everything is high tech these days, right? You know, the watches and the phones and everything else is getting more and more sophisticated. And now it's our beds. And actually, this is a good thing. And this is a really good thing because your bed now, you know, with this new bed, it's, it's called the pod. It's by a company called Eight Sleep. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com is their website. And the pod actually measures your body temperature throughout the night, uh, among other things. It keeps track of a bunch of different sleep biometrics and regulates the temperature of the bed. And it can not just warm it up, it can cool it down as well throughout the night to meet the needs of your body, which gives you peak mind and body performance, gives you deeper, more relaxing, more restful sleep, more, you know, more recovery, more rebuilding of your body and mind. Um, it gives you the sleep intel that I mentioned. Uh, because the better you sleep, the better you everything. And that's why this bed is so important. Try the pod for 100 nights. If you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup. Only at 8sleep.com slash Tom. They've already sold out their first two batches, so they're going fast. For a limited time, get 150 bucks off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash T-H-O-M. 8sleep.com slash Tom. Kieran in Lindenhurst, New York. Hey, Kieran, what's up? I wanted to ask you, I heard some time ago you talking about Medicare and that uh, if you applied for any of these other, you know, outside services, uh, Empire Health or something like that, that you were explicitly opting out of something within Medicare. And I can't remember those details. I was hoping you could elaborate. For sure, me. sure. Uh, there is Medicare parts A and B and then C and then D, okay? Pretty sure that A covers all your expenses when you go into the hospital, and B covers all your expenses with your doctor and lab visits and things like that, okay? And it might be backwards, but it's so A and B is basic core Medicare. As I recall, it's part B. It only covers 80% of your expenses. So you, you can buy a separate insurance policy called a Medigap policy from a private insurance company that fills in that 20%. Medicare type C is something that was rolled out in 2005, as I recall, or maybe 2003. It was during the Bush administration. And it was, as was Medicare Part D. And Medicare Part C is privatized Medicare. It's not really Medicare. You are opting to buy a, a private health insurance policy from a private health insurance company. Most of them are for-profit. There are a few that are not for-profit, Kaiser, for example. And that policy uh, when you have claims against that policy, the government reimburses the company for those claims. And that's where all this fraud is coming in, is all these for-profit companies are submitting claims to the government that aren't actual claims. They found millions and millions and millions of dollars of fraud in that program. It's called Medicare Advantage. And so if you're on Medicare Advantage, you have opted out of Medicare. You don't have the protections of Medicare. You just have this private insurance policy. And you can opt back into Medicare, but I think you have to wait until the next year, until the next November, in order to do that. And then Medicare Part D pays for your drugs, but it stops at around $2,500 and then picks up again around 6000 And so you can buy policies that fill in that donut hole. And that's the one, Medicare Part D, also during the Bush administration. These were two attempts by the Bush administration to destroy Medicare, to privatize Medicare. Medicare Part D, the law says that Medicare itself cannot negotiate with drug companies for prices. They have to pay full retail, whatever the drug companies say. And that's probably the principal driver of this explosion in, in pharmaceutical prices. So, make sense, Kieran? 
Uh, lots of presents there. Yeah, okay. Lots yeah. of, yeah, good. Okay, I'm, I'm glad that was useful. Randy in Jenison, Michigan? Yeah, you're talking about uh, the way the Republicans have run cities into the ground. What about Detroit? Been Democratic for decades, and they have one third of their high schoolers never finish high school. Yep. The roads are crap. The yep. city's crap. Yep. They've been bankrupt. Yep. It's been run by Democrats for decades. Detroit was destroyed by Ronald Reagan's policies. Ronald Reagan oh, negotiated oh, NAFTA. Oh, hang on just a second, oh, Randy. You, you live in Grand Rapids. You know what's going on in Michigan. What, what caused the auto factories to shut down in, in Detroit? The unions in Flint said, screw you, we're going to... No, what, what caused the GM auto factories in Detroit to shut down was that the companies moved yeah. their manufacturing to Mexico. Sure, you know that. Pay somebody to do to do a fifth. They did. The, they did that. They moved their factories to Mexico hour. because Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush negotiated NAFTA, which made it possible. And that's what destroyed Detroit. So yeah, Republicans destroyed so Detroit, Detroit, and then Democrats tried no. to put it back together again. And in fact, if you go to Detroit right now, Randy, you will discover that Detroit is experiencing a substantial revival. So, you know, you can try your, 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 your pathetic little snowflake talking point of, oh, when Democrats take over, or, you know, and I realize more often than not, it's really subtext for when black people take over cities. But if you want to go to original causes, this all goes back to Reaganomics. It goes back to Reaganomics over and over and over again. That Reaganomics and neoliberalism, essentially, this idea of so-called free trade, and the idea that we don't need labor unions anymore. You know, people should have freedom, right? <laughs> it's, they, they should have the right to work for less. This is what's destroying our cities. Our book club selection today is Raghuram Rajan. It's titled The Third Pillar, How Markets and the State leave the community behind. This is from the preface. We're surrounded by plenty. Humanity has never been richer as technologies of production have improved steadily over the last 250 years. And it's not just the developed countries that have grown wealthier. Billions across the developing world have moved from stressful poverty to a comfortable middle-class existence in the span of a generation. Income is more evenly spread across the world than at any other time in our lives. For the first time in history, we have it in our power to eradicate hunger and starvation everywhere. Yet even though the world has achieved economic successes that would have been unimaginable even a few decades ago, some of the seemingly most privileged workers in developed countries are literally worried to death. Half a million more middle-aged, non-Hispanic white American males died between 1999 and 2013 than if their death rates had followed the trend of other ethnic groups. The additional deaths were concentrated among those with a high school degree or less and largely due to drugs, alcohol, and suicide. To put these deaths in perspective, it's as if 10 Vietnam Wars were simultaneously taking place, not in some faraway land, but in homes in small town and rural America. In an era of seeming plenty, a group that once epitomized the American dream seems to have lost hope. The anxieties of the moderately educated, middle-aged white male in the United States are mirrored in other rich developed countries in the West, though perhaps with less tragic effects. The primary source of worry seems to be that moderately educated workers are rapidly losing, or are at risk of losing, good middle-class employment, and this has grievous effects on them, their families, and the communities they live in. 
It is widely understood that job losses stem from both global trade and the technological automation of old jobs. Less well understood is that technological progress has been the more important cause. Nonetheless, as public anxiety turns to anger, radical politicians see more value in attacking imports and immigrants. They propose to protect manufacturing jobs by overturning the liberal rules-based post-war economic order, the system that has facilitated the flow of goods, capital, and people across borders. There is both promise and peril in our future. The promise comes from new technologies that can help us solve our most worrisome problems like poverty and climate change. Fulfilling it requires keeping borders open so that these innovations can be taken to the most underdeveloped parts of the world, even while attracting people from foreign lands to support aging rich country populations. The peril lies not just in influential communities not being able to adapt and instead impeding progress, but also in the kind of society that might emerge if our values and institutions do not change as technology disproportionately empowers and enriches some. Every past technological revolution has been disruptive, prompted a societal reaction, and eventually resulted in societal change that helped us get the best out of technology. Since the early 1970s, we've experienced the information and communications technology revolution, the ICT revolution. It built on the spread of mass computing made possible by the microprocessor and the personal computer, and now includes technologies ranging from artificial intelligence to quantum computing, touching and improving areas as diverse as international trade and gene therapy. The effects of the ICT revolution have been transmitted across the world by increasingly integrated markets for goods, services, capital, and people. Every country has experienced disruption, punctuated by dramatic episodes like the global financial crisis in 2007-2008 and the accompanying Great Recession. We are now seeing the reaction in populist movements of the extreme left and right. What has not happened yet is the necessary societal change, which is why so many despair of the future. We are at a critical moment in human history when wrong choices could derail human economic progress. This book is about the three pillars that support society and how we get to the right balance between them so that society prospers. Two of the pillars I focus on are the usual suspects, the state and markets. Many forests have been consumed by books on the relationship between the two, some favoring the state and others markets. It is the neglected third pillar, the community, the social aspects of society that I want to reintroduce into the debate. When any of the three pillars weakens or strengthens significantly, typically as a result of rapid technological progress or terrible economic adversity like a depression, the balance is upset and society has to find a new equilibrium. The period of transition can be traumatic, but society has succeeded repeatedly in the past. The central question in this book is how we restore the balance between the pillars in the face of ongoing disruptive technological and social change. I will argue that many of the economic and political concerns today across the world, including the rise of populist nationalism and radical movements on the left, can be traced to the diminution of community. The state and markets have expanded their powers and reached in tandem, and left the community relatively powerless to face the full and uneven brunt of technological change. Importantly, the solutions to many of our problems are also to be found in bringing dysfunctional communities back to health not in clamping down on markets. This is how we'll rebalance the pillars at a level more beneficial to society and preserve the liberal market democracies many of us live in. The book, The Third Pillar, How Markets in the State Leave the Community Behind.
And Tom Hartman here with you. Um, you know, my last callers. <laughs> that was so weird. This guy calls up and he says, uh, given the racial tensions, ethnic tensions in America, shouldn't we limit immigration? And I'm like, A, the racial tensions, ethnic tensions in America are being fanned and fomented by people on the right who are suggesting that the reason middle America, white middle America is declining is because black people want jobs, women want jobs, and brown people coming from south of the border want jobs. Well, that's not why the economy is declining. The economy is declining because we are 30 some odd years, almost 40 years into the Reaganomics experiment, into a neoliberal experiment. Over 60% of Americans used to have either a good union job or its equivalent. And now that number is around 12, 15%. Raymond in Williamston, Michigan. Hey, uh, Raymond, what's up? I was listening to the guy that called you from Grand Rapids. Mm -hmm. uh, Grand Rapids had two General Motors plants close. I worked at Kalamazoo Fisher Body, DOC, GM. That closed. And when it was announced that it was closed, we had just, a couple of weeks before, we had just gone to a rah-rah show that showed how profitable our plant was. It was the second most profitable stamping plant in General Motors. Had the highest quality of all the fab stamping plants. And, uh, you know, two weeks later, they called us into a meeting and said, hey, we're closing you. Did they move it to Mexico? And parts of it did, but a lot of it went to Ohio and Flint hmm. and, uh, yeah, Indiana. I mean, Kalamazoo had been a receptive <laughs> place for People came there from Cleveland when its plant closed and from Chicago when its plant closed right. and Grand Rapids when it was one of the Grand Rapids plants when it closed. Yeah, the death of and manufacturing in America was really engineered by Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush. And, yeah, and what did this guy say he was doing? Uh, automobile work, auto workers are doing fifth grader intelligent work. That's what he tried to say, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He's never On worked average, in an auto handle, No, no. He, we handle hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of merchandise every day. Yep. We're responsible for the quality of it and that it's made properly every time because scrapping it, they really, really frown on. Yep. Because it's expensive to throw the stuff away. How much would a stockbroker make if he was selling... $150,000 worth of stuff every day, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I get it. And, and beyond that, <laughs> larger question, I think, that very rarely gets asked in this nation that has bit into this idea of meritocracy since the Reagan era, what's wrong with people who have fifth grade educations if they work hard being able to support their families? Absolutely nothing. I mean, what's uh, wrong with it? I, you know, I, I just don't get it. I mean, it's like, why do we, why do we all sit around and go, oh yeah, well, if somebody wants to work in the fields, they should be paid, you know, crap. If, you know, if, so, if somebody, if somebody wants to, you know, work on a, on, a, on an assembly line, uh, you know, they should, they should, they should make, you know, minimum wage. I mean, it, if somebody's going to work in McDonald's, they should, they, you know, they should make very little, you know, what, why? 
What's wrong with work? What happened to the dignity of work? I mean, our, our values, the, the Republicans have completely distorted the values of this country. Raymond, I got to run, but thank you for the call. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.